Wow, everybody, how are you doing? It's been about five weeks now since Mr. Eddie Van Halen left the planet, but his incredible music remains, and I want to dive deep into it and show you some of the things that I've noticed about it since I've been messing around with his incredible playing for 35 years. And um, I've got a guitar on my knee, a red, white, and black Frankenstein. The first thing we're going to dive into is the first lick I ever heard by Van Halen. Let me give this the old college try. I've got some crazy theories about where that came from. Also, I've got great Van Halen encounter stories that you won't forget. We're going to hear from the great bassist Robbie Crane and also the great guitarist Jay Gore. And then at the end, I've got something I want to read to you that I put a lot of work into for Guitar Player Magazine. And this Van Halen celebration is brought to you by Blue Microphones. Blue has been making microphones for 25 years, and today they are the mic of choice for millions of musicians, podcasters, guitar players, producers, and maybe you. Whether you're just starting out or looking for a new sonic color to add to your portfolio of studio tones, to your mixes, you can find the perfect microphone at bluemic.com. That's bluemic.com. No guitar is Did you guys hear how lucky I got with the flanger on that unchained bit? Let's hear that again. Especially that first one when I kicked it on because you never quite know where the flanger is going to be. So juicy. I've been in love with that sound since the seventh grade. Got lucky there just now. Although, interestingly, George Tripps will tell you that Eddie could probably hear it sometimes because he had that shit cranked up so loud when he was tracking that he could hear where it was in its cycle before he started the song. Okay, so the thing about a great guitar player is he or she will take the building blocks that are around them and take them to the next level, put their own stamp on it. I mean, nobody's 100% original. Jimi Hendrix... In some ways, he was the most original player ever. I mean, I grew up thinking, man, he's the guy that, you know, played behind his back and with his teeth. But then you find out T-Bone Walker was doing that stuff like 20 years earlier. So it's really what you do with what you've been given, what has been left at your feet. And in my opinion, nobody has done more with the building blocks that were left to him than Eddie Van Halen. What if, for example, I picked up a Telecaster and I played this famous lick? is, of course, Keith Richards' famous lick to Brown Sugar. And I theorize that subconsciously or consciously, Van Halen took those building blocks that were left at his feet by the great Keith Richards, and I'm talking specifically about these little triads on the second, third, and fourth strings. Like if you bar your guitar at the fifth fret, and of course I'm dropped down a half step for today's podcast as Van Halen was. And now I'm back on my MJ Guitars custom-built uh, Frankenstein running through a Amp 1 from Blue Guitar. That's the second, third, fourth string at the fifth fret. You get a major chord. Of course, if you drop a couple fingers down, your second finger and third finger, kind of like a C shape from an open chord, you get the four chord there. As Eddie Van Halen did at the tenth fret of Unchained. Actually, maybe he just added the second finger and not the third. I'm not sure. He often just added the second. Interesting, that phrase to me seems the same rhythm as the brown sugar phrase from Keith Richards. And Keith went. It's almost like they're inverted. All the same shapes, though. I mean, I could play, I could play brown sugar kind of like it was unchained, right? I don't know, they just sound similar to me. I think those blocks are in Eddie's DNA. He has so many incredible songs 
using those shapes. So they make a great gateway into the Van Halen sound. By the way, for those keeping score, I don't think Keith Richards used a Telecaster on that tune, but he is a Tele guy, so I used my nearest Telecaster for that. The important thing here is that these building blocks were available to everybody, but what Eddie did with them on the Fair Warning album, which was about 1980, boom, let's hear his version of Unchained. This gives me chills to this day. It still sounds fucking epic. Full of harmony, but so heavy. I remember that day when I came home from school with a vinyl record of Fair Warning. I went straight to side two. I wanted to hear that song again because I had only heard it briefly, but I knew there was something there. I turned up that stereo. We had a great receiver, all tubes. The glass radio dial was smashed, but that thing still cranked beautifully. You know, mom would be at work, the neighbors would be gone, and I would crank that shit, and it just echoed through the house, and the song sounded like a tank was coming through the wall. And of course, as I said, Eddie has a whole bunch of tunes that kind of take advantage of those Keith Richards-style grips, like Dance the Night Away intro, or even Panama, which is more involved, or Somebody Get Me a Doctor. But there's something you really need to understand about that to get the tone. And to do that, let's start with the simplest and earliest example of Eddie Van Halen sort of channeling Keith Richards and taking it up to the stratosphere, and that would be Running With The Devil. Let's listen to the isolated guitar from Running With The Devil. Of course, we could spend all day just talking about Eddie's incredible blazing hard rock tone. But remember, there's so much more to it than just the gear. There's also the way you tune the guitar. Your tuner has been lying to you. If you just go by your tuner, you're not going to ever be able to get that running with the devil sound. Did you hear what I did? I had to adjust the tuning a little bit. To get that sound, I'm not saying I have it, but I've got a little ingredient going, which is the third of the chord is tuned flat. We're talking about the note that's on the second string, the highest note in each of those triads. And in reality, it's not actually tuned flat. This is the real note that you would sing if you were harmonizing with your buddies or you are playing a double stop on a violin. It's a very natural thing to do. It happens to be in perfect alignment with the overtone series, like the harmonic that would be somewhere around the fourth fret of a string that we always think is out of tune. It's actually in tune. I got a shout out to Steve Kimmock here. He taught me a lot about this stuff when I interviewed him like 12 years ago. Kind of blew my mind. If you can tune that third down, your guitar will sing no matter how much distortion you have. So you get it to sing. Instantly, any amp is going to scream a little bit more like Eddie Van Halen if you do that. Of course, if this is your first time messing around with this approach, you're going to be really bummed when you want that string to be the fifth of a chord or something, because suddenly it's going to be heinously out of tune, like if I play this top part of an open E chord. So that's why, of course, your tuner has you tune everything evenly, which means some things like thirds and sevens are going to be a little sharp, but you won't be heinously out of tune when you jump between chords. It's a rabbit hole. Speaking of running with the devil, I always reflect on how lucky Van Halen was because they had their sound. I mean, it's amazing what Eddie had together at age 22 when he recorded the first album. But how lucky were they that they ran into Ted Templeman and he fell in love with them and he wanted to bring Eddie to the world. Listen to that reverb tank from Sunset Sound on the Running With The Devil guitar and so many other of their first five albums. It's a brilliant place. It's actually, I think, a, a room where they put the speaker at one end and then mic the deep reverb at the other and then add that to the mix. So luscious. And can we give a shout out to Don Landy, Van Halen's longtime engineer. What a hero. 
So while we're still on the simple stuff here, you know another basic building block that Eddie capitalized on and took to the stratosphere was a simple piece of gear that everyone had access to in the 70s when he, at 22, tracked this incredible track called Eruption. Here's the end of it. You know, back in about 2005, I had the thrill of flying out to Joe Perry's house in Boston, the great Aerosmith guitarist, and interviewing him. And, you know, they were kings. They were the stadium rock kings when Van Halen 1 came out. And his perspective on Van Halen changing everything is pretty interesting. He said, and here's a quote he gave me in that interview. He said, I love the first Van Halen record from the moment I heard it. And what was amazing about it is that it was full of stuff that I'd heard before, yet it all sounded so new. For instance... That echoplex sound that Eddie did at the end of Eruption was such an old trick that I never would have done it because I thought it was cheesy. But Eddie was from the next generation and everything was new to him. And he was playing to a whole new batch of kids that didn't grow up with that stuff. So it was very smart for him to use tricks like that on top of his naturally brilliant guitar playing. And once again, Eddie took a building block, which is the tape echo, and he turbocharged it. He literally modded the motor so it would actually go slower and drop down a full octave to where he could get that famous sound. Again, he just took it to the next level. I like to say he took it to the stratosphere because look at his guitar. It's a super strat. I mean, even companies like Ibanez and and companies that make really fast playing double cutaway strat style locking trim guitars, I think they all owe a debt to Eddie Van Halen who really developed that. We all famously know how he took a 335 pickup and and shoved it into his Charvel strap body, one volume knob. But it's interesting, like everything he did, he took to the next level. One of the most imitated guitars ever, he took vibrato bar to the next level with a little help from Floyd Rose's tremolo system. Not that he needed it. He didn't need the Floyd system. I mean, he didn't even have that on the first album. But let's just look at his stripes. Talk about taking something to the next level. I was listening to Brian Kehoe be interviewed. He's a um, producer and engineer in Sunset Sound, where Van Halen recorded their first five or six records. They have a YouTube series, and Brian was just talking about how Van Halen would go check out this punk band. This is probably before Van Halen was even signed. They'd go check out this punk band called The Dills, which, if you know your bands, featured Chip Kinman on guitar. And Chip had a striped guitar. And there's a photo. And sure enough, I looked it up. And there's a great photo of Chip. Looks like a white Les Paul studio or something like that. And he's got black electrical tape on it. Very, looks like the nucleus of Eddie Van Halen's famous stripe design. Of course, Eddie took that concept, consciously or not, or whatever. That approach was taken by Eddie Van Halen to the stratosphere. He, of course, painted his Charvel body black and then put tape over it and painted it white and pulled off the tape and then you have these beautiful black stripes. Later of course he added a red coat. That design now is synonymous with his guitar sound. How many other players have taken a pattern of colors and made it synonymous with their sound? It's it's an approach that again Van Halen took several levels up. You could see a beach towel with that or a license plate frame And boom, you know that whoever owns that is an Eddie Van Halen fan. There's so many building blocks that he took to the next level. Let's listen to the isolated guitar of I'm the One. Let's look at the harmonics. Eddie took the same old harmonics that we all know and love, the 12th fret, 7th fret, and 5th fret. You know these ones. And he just made them part of his sound, using them for great fills. Like here he is again on Atomic Punk. Turn on my guitar here. I noticed he does it at this little spot in Mean Street, too. 
Those are just the natural harmonics. Of course, he began tapping harmonics. There's a million great examples of that. But then we get to the overtone series. If you know your harmonics, you know you can play 12 frets higher, natural harmonic, you get an octave. Seven frets, you get octave plus a fifth. Five frets higher, you get two octaves. Four frets higher, you get two octaves plus a third. And this is that perfect third we were talking about from Running with the Devil. That's the overtone series third. That's the barbershop third right there. Just past the third fret, you get two octaves plus a fifth. It's worth memorizing that, seven, five, four. We already know that if you tap 12 frets higher, you get an octave. So let's remember seven, five, four. So you'll hear like Eddie Van Halen live, he'll tap seven frets higher, five frets higher, and four frets higher. And like he does this kind of stuff on his solos in front of the arena. You know, he'll be up there, he'll be like. That last one is 12 frets higher. So I'm holding the string of the fifth string, my third finger at the seventh fret, and that last note was 12 frets higher. But again, most of that was the seven, five, four formula. First note that I tapped was seven frets higher, then five frets and four. Then you lower your left hand to the fifth fret. Do the same thing, seven frets higher, five. You can even go that sort of three frets higher thing. That's hard without a lot, of, without a shit ton of distortion. Of course, now we're in the Mean Street thing here, right? This is how he did Mean Street. Most of that is fretted notes with the seven, five, four being experimented with. This is all stuff that nobody had really grabbed and him with his incredible talent and his feel and that incredible tone, he just experimented with it and came up with these incredible licks. All right, I got a couple more really important Van Halen approaches that you need to know to understand his playing. But you've been such a good audience here, eating your vegetables, so to speak, learning all this, all this technique. Let's take a break now and bring in Robbie Crane for a really incredible Van Halen remembrance that I think really humanizes Mr. Van Halen. This came when Robbie was a young bass player playing with Vince Neil on the tour opening for Van Halen around the early 90s when Vince went solo from Motley Crue. Steve Stevens on guitar, badass. I got to know Robbie when I toured with Robbie and he would tell me these incredible stories, have me rolling on the floor. I played with him with Kristen Chenoweth. We did all those TV dates. For example, he once told me how like in 1996, he was on the road with Vince Neil and the drummer, Vic Fox, he, okay, Robbie happened to be by his hotel room door and he noticed something outside his door. He looked through the peephole and he saw the drummer lean a big bucket of water against his door so that it would splash everywhere when he opened the door. So he carefully later opened the door, managed to not spill the bucket, but now it was time for revenge. So he, I don't know, went down the hall, noticed a, a fire extinguisher. So he went to Vic's room where Vic and Steve Isham, the keyboardists, were in the room. And somehow Robbie was able to remove the peephole to their door. And he put the nozzle of that fire extinguisher right up against it and unloaded an entire fire extinguisher worth of fire retardant into their room. I think a cloud hit them and they never knew what happened. He said they were both sick for days. It's dangerous out there, folks. So anyway... Those were the years. Robbie's a great bass player. He plays with Black Star Riders right now, and he's been in Rat. He was in Rat for years, and George Lynch and many other groups. I remember he had told me this story about his first encounters with Mr. Van Halen when he was on the road, and I thought I'd have him share his, his tales from that tour. <laughs> Hey, this is Robbie Crane from the Black Star Writers, talking about my time touring with Van Halen in 1993, summer on the Right Here, Right Now tour. My experience with Edward and, and Alex and uh, Michael and Sammy was an amazing one. We started rehearsals at the beginning of May of 93 at Third Encore. Van Halen was across the uh, parking lot from us. And uh, we rehearsed there together for about three and a half weeks and uh, got to meet the guys uh, 
Michael invited me into the Van Halen rehearsal and I was able to walk in on Edward's side of the stage while they were playing. I forgot the song they were playing, but I just remember just walking in and Edward looking right at me and he, he was playing like this really killer rhythm on uh, on his guitar and it was like a bass almost like, you know, just, just writing one note, you know, ghosting and then it might have been uh, right, it might have been right now, or I'm not sure what song it was. Anyways, long story short. Great to meet Edward and Alex and uh, and Michael and Sam on that tour. A lot of great times on the tour. Edward gave me a, a black bass in Chicago, a Stingray, a Music Man bass. Um, he gave me a Van Halen Music Man guitar at the end of the tour. Um, one of the things that I thought was interesting, it was actually his uh, his, his dressing room guitar. It was a, it's a yellow 5150. It's a 5150 on it. Um, but he, um, one of the interesting things about the tour that I thought was cool was that every day we were all on plane. So every time we'd land, you know, we would hub out of a city and, uh, like, let's say Chicago was our hub city for five days. And so we would fly and do the, the you know, that region of, you know, central U S uh, hubbing out of Chicago. So we'd always stay at the same hotels. And in this case, in most cases, it would be the Ritz Carlton hotels in whatever city, Boston or Dallas or you know, wherever we were. At any rate, so the Van Halen guys were there with us. Ed Luffler was our manager and, you know, the whole the whole Van Halen crew. And, and we had Rich Fisher and Mike Andy with us. With, I was with Vince Neil. And, um, you know, every night, not every night, I'd say every couple of nights, you know, I was the youngest guy on the tour. Everyone kind of knew it was my first tour as a you know professional musician in the band. I had toured, you know, multiple tours as a crew guy, but never really in the band. So this was like my first big tour. So long story short, you know, most nights, some nights when Steve Lukather would be out on the road, a couple times he came out on that tour, him and Edward would be hanging out. And Edward would, um, you know, I would be in bed three or four in the morning, two or three in the morning, and there would be a knock at my door. And, uh, you know, I'd go to look through the peephole and the hole would be clogged and, you know, finger over the hole and I'd open the door and it would be Edward. Um, he wouldn't say anything to me. He would just, you know, kind of walk right past me. He'd have a He'd have a pillowcase in his hand and an uh, empty pillowcase, and he'd walk in, walk, walk over to my mini bar, open the door, and just pour everything into the into the uh, into the pillowcase, and uh, and put five hundred and twelve dollars on top of the uh, of the mini bar, and just walk out. And I'd be like, um, you know, hey Edward, what's up? And he would just you know walk out. You know, next day. You know, they would they would be angry, you know, Bob Dates and, and Scotty Ross, the tour manager, and the band assistant would be like, you know, somebody got Edward drunk and who gave Edward alcohol? And so they, they started to get hip to check everyone's incidental bills. And uh, mine was the incidental bill with the $512 on it, you know, daily or on the days prior to, you know, him getting caught, getting drunk. And um, he was supposed to be sober on the tour. So, you know, they had a big meeting and they threatened to throw us off the tour because um, because I was... I was allowing Edward to, to come into my room and, and, and get him drunk. You know, I explained to them, you know, that wasn't my doing. They knew I was a youngster and I didn't really, I was like 22 and didn't really, you know, one of my guitar heroes, what am I going to do? Stop the guy, you know what I mean? I was stoked that he even chose me to do it too. But yeah, I did it a couple of times on that tour, maybe four or five times. And um, and finally, we, we put a stop to it. But another great thing, which was he would do, uh, when we would get to the city, whatever, you know, city that we were hubbing out of, we would fly into the venue city that day. Um, Edward would always be in our dressing room. Like we would roll in, you know, the whole band would come roll into the dressing room at soundcheck before soundcheck. And Edward would be sitting in there with his yellow guitar, uh, playing guitar, just, you know, with no, with no amplifier. I mean, a lot of people talk about the amplifiers that he would use in the dressing room. And we would see photos of him back in the seventies and eighties with the, with the fender amps or whatever back in there. But in this time and this tour that we did, he didn't have an amp. He would, um, he actually, I said to him, I go, oh, don't, you, don't you have an amp that you play through? And he said, man, if you can't play it acoustically on this guitar, then there's no reason to play it. And riff sounds, you know, better almost this way. And I, I thought that was an interesting, you know, take on it. And uh, it was always really cool to us. He, um, he had a knack for, we, on our rider, we had Stoli Cristal Vodka. And um, whenever we would show up in the dressing room, he would be in there playing guitar and the Stoli Cristal vodka would have the the cap on it still with the you know the 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 label on the cap, but the bottle would be drinking like all the way through the neck of the vodka all the way down to like the top of the the part where it starts to grow you know the the bottle into the big bottle, but it would be sealed and we would always go you know how in the hell does he do that how does he how is he able to unlock the vodka without breaking the seal he had a knack for doing it and we would always tease him and go. 
you know, Edward, hey man, did you drink our vodka? And he would go, I don't know what you're talking about, man. And he'd walk out of the room. It was it was really cool, man. It was just a really cool experience to uh, to be able to hang out with the Van Halen guys. Obviously, one of my all-time favorite bands and most of the influential bands. Being from California, growing up in Hollywood like I did. You know, Van Halen in the '70s was uh, was a was a huge influence on all of us. Edward's innovation with regard to you know gear and and tone and all that stuff is you know goes without being said. But me as a bass player, you know, he he inspires me to this day with just different things that he did. You know, I used to run Variax on my on my Ampegs because you know Edward ran them on his Marshalls, and I I like that grainy, dirty sound, so I'd bring him down. I'd bring him down to 90. I mean, I wouldn't really push him too hard because <laughs> I didn't want those electric uh, electric windings transformers to uh, to blow on me, especially on my older blue lines. But uh, yeah, man, Edward inspired a lot of people. Obviously, we know that. And um, just innovated a lot of great things. But yeah, those those are some of my stories. I, mean, I have a million more, especially, you know, on just being on that tour, how cool he was to me. He actually told me the David Lee Roth story uh, in the world. Dave Weiderman was there. Was Dave Weiderman, Mike Anthony. Alex Van Halen, Edward, and myself. And Bob Dates would come in and out. And we were in the dressing room. It was the day he gave me my black uh, st- uh, uh, Stingray bass. And um, and just out of nowhere, we started talking about music. And, you know, I'm just, I don't even, he gave me the bass. I was thanking him for it. And uh, long story short, he just started talking about Dave Roth. And they kind of told me the whole story as to why, the, you know, what their side of why Dave left. And I thought it was interesting to... To be in a room, I remember looking around the room and looking at Mike Anthony specifically, thinking like, holy heck, here I am, 22 years old, you know, in a room with, you know, the Van Halen guys pretty much. And uh, and they're sharing this, you know, very candid personal story to their career with me. And uh, I found it to be very awesome. And, uh, you know, they were very good to me. Alex was really cool. Michael and I are still cool friends. I ended up after the tour. Uh, buying a bunch of Michael's old cases, so I got a. If you ever see me on tour, you see all my Ampeg cases or my EBS cases. They're all Van Halen, various tour, you know, uh, cases for the for, uh, from from Michael. And I just think it's really cool that you know I've been in, was, had that opportunity to tour with them and and enjoy the experience, man. But yeah, man, Edward was really cool, and um, God bless him, man. He's he's going to be missed and uh, some good times right there. But hey, man. I hope uh, everything is going well. You, Mr. Jude Gold, and we will talk soon. Robbie Train out. Goofing around, yeah, you know I'll never get that even close to what Eddie did. If you listen to it, it's just phenomenal. Eruption, he was 22. And um, there's so much more to the Van Halen style than just the technical that we are discussing. But first, thank you, Robbie Crane, for what a great story, you know. It's not that I wanted to show Eddie's boozing side, but, you know, I've done a few of these moments in my last 20 years of guitar journalism where... Where someone dies and we and we put them on this pedestal and everything, but it's also important to see the human side. I'm so thankful that Eddie didn't join the 27 Club with Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison. Cancer fucking took him, but at least we had him for 65 years. And at least people like Toshi Inagi got to meet Eddie Van Halen, his hero. Toshi plays Van Halen brilliantly. And Toshi plays in the as you know from his episode on this show, he plays in the Jimmy Kimmel Band, and Van Halen played the Kimmel Show right outside on the sidewalk in front of like 40,000 people, and um, Toshi got to shake hands with his hero. It's just wonderful that Eddie was around as long as he was. All right, let's look at some more signature EVH-isms, such as what I call the down-up shuffle pick. He uses this approach, first of all, with three note per string ascending runs, like on I'm the One. That would be starting up at the 16th fret of the fifth string. Half step, whole step. Downstroke on the first note, hammer the middle note, and upstroke on the third note. Down, up, down. What's happening there is there's this blues shuffle. Down, up, down, up, down, up, down. That's an important Van Halenism. Not only for this thing, but that rhythm is used in more complicated places too, like at the beginning of the song. 
Again, that's that shuffle rhythm. Da, 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 da. In the A minor box, you know, your stairway to heaven position at the fifth fret, little pickup. And then beat one is fifth fret of the second string. Pull, so it pulls off to the open B. Seventh fret of the third string. Fifth fret of the third string. Pull off to the G. And fret the seventh fret of the fourth string. Again, down, up, down, up, down, up. So there's that blues shuffle rhythm coming at you again. So that's a very clever thing to use the open strings like that. You'll actually hear him use that same technique at the fastest, most maniacal part of eruption. So here he's doing the same exact A minor thing. right, as I'm the one. But after the first, he jumps up a half step up the neck. Does the same thing down on the next string set lower. That time he's jumping up in whole steps, not half steps. Let's move over to the second solo of I'm the One, which fried my brain. You know, long before YouTube had everything isolated and YouTube had these buttons where you could play everything at half speed, I sat there listening to the album version and I had the notes. couldn't figure it out, I, seriously. And then after like, I swear, a month of messing with it, I thought maybe he's using open strings. Open high E with that upstroke. And then let's maybe hammer on the 10th fret of the second string. Or maybe he actually picks that 10th note of the second string. Either way, get pretty much the same effect. Pull off down to the seventh and to the open. And then on the third string at the 10th fret, Pick that note. This is an important pattern in Van Halen. That lick at the front of that is also used, I think, in the solo to somebody get me a doctor. Well, guess what? That same lick, if you move it down a whole step to A, it's the eruption thing. I never got the eruption thing until I got it in I'm the One, and then there it was. Right? The first note's the high E, and then you're gonna hammer. Sometimes I wonder if he picks the first note of the second string. Or hammer. And then he goes down to the. It's the same kind of move. That's the open second string. And then on the third string, hammer the seventh, fifth, or I should say slur the seventh, fifth, and fourth. So you see where we got from the little blues thing, down, up, down, up, all the way to eruption using those open strings. These were techniques, just all those open strings just sitting there that most people never really used. And he used them 
in such a cool way that when he played Eruption, I don't know about you, but I can hear that he never sat down and like slaved away with a metronome. It just doesn't have that sound. It's got everything you want and nothing you don't. It's got the, the speed and the ferociousness and the, and the clarity and the mojo and none of the soullessness. I love that. Okay, we have been focusing a lot on the technical because that's the stuff that will get you in the door, but the feel of Van Halen is so important. I do have one more very important technical thing that I think you should know if you want to be deep on that Van Halen style. But I want to take a time out just to remind you just the feel of Eddie Van Halen is just, it's, there's so much beautiful stuff, not just the hard rock, but also the groove and the blues and the melodies. so many wonderful bluesy kind of crying solos like I'll Wait it's a keyboard song sounds like he has a strat pickup or something like the neck pickup going by memory but I think it was pretty much something like that just so beautiful I actually have my neck pickup on my MJ guitars Frankenstein actually works although Van Halen famously had a neck pickup in there that wasn't even wired up and he had that piece of junk in the middle slot just to kind of add some vibe and throw people off I just love that I mean if anyone out there's a Star Wars fan do you love the Millennium Falcon just so rough but yet so kick-ass to me <laughs> The Frankenstein guitar is the six-string equivalent of Han Solo's famous spacecraft. All right, off on a tangent, but you know, just the, the feel thing. Like, we spent a lot of time talking about Unchained earlier, but what about the verse section? When I got that vinyl record home that day, I was struck by how incredibly, like, Beethoven-esque the intro was, but then how it sounded kind of bluesy and almost off the cuff, like he sounded almost like he was improvising on the verse section. I thought it was so cool, man. He just sounded like a cowboy walking down the street, kind of. One of my favorite feel solos, and a lot of people, obviously, who are Van Halen fans, as you might know, if you are one yourself, fair warning, what an incredible record. The feel of his solo on Hear About It Later kills me to this day. bluesy yet so three-dimensional and angular. I never got to meet my hero, Eddie Van Halen. I know plenty of people who have. One of my favorite stories of meeting Eddie Van Halen is Jay Gore's incredible moment that all of us would dream that our moment of meeting Eddie would go the way his did. And let's get right to that. Let's just take a moment to thank Blue Microphones, though, for supporting our show. Blue has been making mics for 25 years, and they are the mic of choice for millions of musicians, podcasters, producers, guitar players, and content creators. I'm using the Blue Mouse right now, and for the first time, I put it on the same desk as my laptop, and it's so sensitive, I realize it's picking up the fan of my laptop. Damn you, Blue, for being so good. So I've kind of gated my voice a little bit 
So, but yeah, I'm not going back and recording this whole thing again, folks. This is real, man. This podcast is real. We just go through it. I always want to bring you an adventure every time I do one of these shows. We'll be back to plugging in with a guitar player next week, as is always the format. But we had to change the format today because we're honoring Mr. Van Halen, and I thank Blue for making it happen. People choose Blue to elevate their productions. Whether you're just starting out or looking for a new mic to add to your mix, a new color for your palette, visit bluemic.com, click Get Started, and find the perfect mic for you. All right, Jay Gore, great guitar player, plays many different styles, and I just love his Van Halen story. I put a little text version of it on the Facebook page for No Guitar Safe, but now we get to hear in full detail what I think is kind of a really sweet encounter with Mr. Van Halen. And by the way, after this, there's one more technique you gotta know, and I'm gonna show it to you, but it's not this one. But just for a transition, here's one of my favorite Van Hagar riffs. Where's one? Hi there. I'm Jay Gore, and I was asked by my good friend Jude Gold to say a few words about Edward Van Halen, and uh, I will say more than a few words. I first was exposed to Ed, to Van Halen, as a band. I was about 10 years old, and I was listening to the radio. In Los Angeles, we had two local rock stations, KMET and KLOS, and they were kind of next to each other on the dial, 94.7 and 95.5, and you could quite easily just turn the knob on the home system back and forth between the two. So I was in my room and flipping channels and this song was on the radio. I'd never heard a sound like this ever. It just blew my mind and I couldn't wait for them to back announce the song, which of course they did not. So I called the radio station. Back in those days, you could dial 520 KLOS or 520 KMET or 520KRTH or KIQQ, whatever the station was, just the prefix would be 520. So I called up, somebody answered the phone, and I asked, What was that song you played about three songs ago? And he said, uh, Was it this? And I mean, mentioned some songs. I said, I don't know. It was a song I'd never heard before. And I started kind of telling him the lyric, something about rocking the cradle. And he said, Oh, and the cradle will rock. I said, Yes. He said, that is Van Halen. And I said, Van Halen? Ah, thank you. And I was obsessed with Van Halen. And I remember I kept changing the radio station all day long to hear more Van Halen. About a week later, I'm at my cousin's house, and he's a few years older than me. And I asked him, have you ever heard of this band called Van Halen? And I was about 10 or 11. He was 13 or 14. He goes, of course, man, they're, they're amazing. Amazing band. I said, you have a Van Halen record. He said, no, but let's go get one. So we hopped on the, our bicycles and we drove down to the local record store. And when we got to the record store, we found the Van Halen records and there were three of them. And now I had a decision to make because I had a $5 bill. That was it. Which of these records do I buy? There's three of them. Van Halen, Van Halen 2, and Van Halen Women and Children First. So my cousin said, well, I know this first record. It's got some bad songs running with the devil and ain't talking about love. He goes, do you know these songs? I go, no, I just know the one I heard on the radio. And uh, I couldn't remember. It was something about a cradle. I remember that. So we looked at the third record and he said, well, this one's got the song on it you heard. So maybe you should get this one because at least you know you like one of the songs. Good plan. So I bought Women and Children first. That was the first Van Halen album that I owned. And I wore it out. The funny thing is that years later, I found out that that guitar part we all know so well that... That part is actually Eddie playing a Wurlitzer plugged into his Marshall stack. For those of you who didn't know that little bit of trivia, that's technically the first time keyboards were on a Van Halen record. I had been playing guitar for a couple years already. 
I wasn't very good. I was still, you know, basically beginner. I knew a handful of chords and some bar chords. But I would say that very soon after that moment of buying that record, my walls were covered with Van Halen posters, literally like wallpaper. You couldn't even tell what color the walls were painted. I had a really close friend and he was a guitar player as well. And we were the same age and he would take his guitar lesson and then he would come and we would meet up at school and he would show me what his teacher taught him that week at his lesson. And that was kind of how I got into learning scales and everything beyond your basic cowboy chords. But he was very into Van Halen like I was. And we would challenge each other. You know, we would take a guitar solo and we would try to figure out, you know, I would take the first eight bars of the solo and he would take the second eight bars. And then we'd meet on the weekend and we'd show each other what we learned from these Van Halen solos. And it was starting with easier stuff like you talk about love and running with the devil, the easier solos, of course. Over the years, I had a couple chance encounters with Eddie around LA. One was uh, Guitar Center in Hollywood, the old Guitar Center, not that big building they have now, but when it was a smaller little corner store and they were kind of clearing people out and I was in there and I knew one of the guys that worked there and I said, why are they kicking us out? He says, we have a VIP coming in. He goes, but just, you know, pretend like you're buying a pedal from me or something like that and you'll be cool. And then uh, sure enough, Eddie Van Halen came in the back door and bought a bunch of keyboards and I'll never forget, he pulled out a wad of cash. I'll never forget that. He had like a Hawaiian shirt on and came in and he bought, I guess, the keyboards that became the boards he used on Jump. I think they were Oberheim's. And he bought a bunch of them. I think they, I remember them, seeing them stack like three or four of them up on, a, up on the counter there in the Guitar Center. But I didn't meet him or anything. Then a couple years later, I was taking my sister to a doctor's appointment after school and got into an office building on Sunset Boulevard and Eddie got into the elevator with us. Again, didn't meet him. And uh, I remember my sister elbowing me in the elevator, you know, like, say something to him, say something, just elbowing me. And I was elbowing her back, you know, it was just funny. And then Eddie got out a couple of floors later and she's like, why didn't you say anything? I said, what am I going to say to him that he hasn't heard a million times before? She said, yeah, you're right. I said, don't worry. One day me and Ed are going to be really good friends. Don't you worry about it. <laughs> well, we never became friends, but I did get to actually meet Ed and have a conversation with him. It was a short conversation, but I did get to meet him and it was uh, a really amazing day for me. And it was much later in my life. And uh, here's what happened. In around 1998 or 1999, I was playing in a top 40 band called Flipside. And we were hired to play a carnival at a private school in LA. And we played on a small stage. It was you know, maybe like 10 feet by 12 feet. And it was only about a foot, foot and a half high. And it was out on the school's playground. They had, you know, the carnivals going and bouncy houses and all that kind of stuff. And we were just there kind of in the background. Really, nobody was paying much attention to us. At some point, we were playing Hold the Line by Toto. And I really tried to learn the guitar parts and the solos and stuff like that as close to possible. I really wanted to nail stuff back in those days. It's important to me. During the solo, I'm, you know, looking down at my hands as I'm playing. And my bass player walked up to me and kind of yells in my ear, Hey, don't look now, but you've got a fan. And I'll never forget those exact words he said to me. And I looked up from my guitar and standing right in front of me, like less than a foot away from me, with that huge smile of his, Eddie Van Halen. And he watched me for a few more minutes and uh, then he walked off and he looked over at me and he gave me that big thumbs up and that big Eddie Van Halen grin and kind of waved and walked off. And I watched where he went. We were in the middle of the song still, and I watched where he walked because I knew I had to chase him down. I knew I didn't have the guts to talk to him in the elevator. I didn't have the guts to talk to him at Guitar Center. But now I was a grown-up, and I had the guts. So this was my chance. I had to meet him. And I didn't want to meet him as a fan, but as a fellow guitarist, a fellow L.A. native who grew up playing Sunset Strip clubs just like he did. So I watched him walk away, and... We finished the song and I quickly looked at the band, said, we're taking a break, guys. We're taking a break. And I ran off the stage and I followed Eddie to where he went. And I walked up to him and I tapped him on his shoulder and I said, hey, Eddie. And he turned around and when he saw me, I put out my hand to shake his hand and he just ignored it and he just grabbed me and gave me a big, huge bear hug. I mean, just a full on hug. And he kept saying to me, hey, man you're a fucking monster. You're a fucking monster. He kept saying that to me. And I remember feeling just elation. 
uh, I can't believe how well you played that solo. The one from Hold the Line. I never forgot those words coming from the man who's the reason for me being a guitar player for pretty much everything I've done since I was 12 years old, musically speaking. We spoke for a few minutes and I told him how we had a mutual friend in Steve Lukather and how I had told Luke that I'd never met him. And Luke said that he'd bring me to Ed's house to hang someday, which never happened. And Ed said that I was welcome anytime that Luke wanted to bring me. And yes, that day never happened because it just didn't. I never pursued it. You know, just didn't happen. It was nice to hear him say that to me, whether he meant it or not. As we were speaking, he asked me my name several times. He said, hey man, you know, tell me your name and Jay Gore. Jay Gore, cool man. And we'd talk, small talk. And, uh, you know, what's going on with the band and that kind of stuff and what I'm doing. And then he'd say, oh, you know, a couple minutes later, tell me your name one more time. Tell me your name. I'd say, Jay Gore. Okay, Jay Gore. I'll forget that. I won't forget that. I won't forget that. He kept forgetting. I won't forget that. Jay Gore. And we'd talk a few more minutes. And the whole time, Valerie's there on a, Valerie Bertinelli, she's there on a, they had a bulletin board up and there's a, 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 a silent auction and she was signing her name auctioning for things, you know, and she was writing Valerie Van Halen. And I remember seeing her write Valerie Van Halen. So we're talking a little more and he, uh, again, he says, yeah, well, I got to go find Wolfie, man. He's running around here somewhere and I don't want him getting in any trouble. And he was a young kid at the time. And I said, yeah, man, just, it was great to meet you. And, uh, he said, tell me again what your name is. I'm sorry. One more time. So I told him Jay Gore again. He goes, yeah, yeah. Jay Gore. He hugged me again and told me, Jay Gore, you're a fucking monster, man. You're a monster. And then that was it. That was the end of that day. And sometime later, maybe a year or so later, I was having lunch with Steve Lukather and I told him, Hey man, I finally met Eddie. And I told him the whole story. And Luke said, Hey man, that was you. He told me that he met some guy that was playing my solo better than I do, and he couldn't remember your name. <laughs> that's so funny. I thought it was hilarious. So that's a true story. That was my encounter with Eddie Van Halen. Uh, thank you, Eddie, for all that you've given to music and all that you've given to the guitarists of the world. There's many guitar players out there who don't know they're even influenced by Eddie, just like there's many people out there who write songs who don't know they're influenced by the Beatles but they're influenced by somebody who was influenced by the Beatles. It started, that was ground zero. And Eddie is that way. Eddie is ground zero for what most of us do as guitar players. Our pickups are wax potted because of him. Our amps have different gain staging because of him. We throw humbuckers in our strats because of him. We have locking trem systems because of him. I could go on and on and on. And even if he didn't actually invent these things himself, he's the one that presented them to us and showed us how to implement them into our own individual playing styles. And there'll never be another Eddie Van Halen. He will be missed, sorely missed. Thanks so much for your time and for listening to my story. Man, what a great story. Thank you, Jay. How do I follow that? That was really powerful. So glad you got to meet the king. Jay Gore, good friend. He is a supremely versatile guitar player. Be sure to check out his episode. I think it was episode 65. It was like right after the Steve Lukather episode. And let me tell you all, if you've never been on a text thread with Jay Gore and Steve Lukather, you just haven't lived. This is some very funny and very <laughs> off the wall stuff. God bless him. Love those guys. Speaking of guys, I love my good buddy, Adam Johnson. I remember it. We were at Ari Gorman's house and he showed me this delay trick that fried my 17 year old brain. I think Adam played this lick. I'm not sure if this was his lick or somebody else's. I could be remembering it wrong. And then he added the delay pedal. Like, wow. You know, you just turn the delay so it's exactly the same volume as your picked note and set it to where it repeats a beat and a half after your pick note. The famous dotted eighth delay. This is another building block. And of course, I thought that, well, this was must be some cool 80s trick. Of course, now all delay pedals, most of them have a tap tempo where you can just tap that rhythm in. I thought, you know, okay, yeah, that's like a edge thing, right? The edge from U2 did that all the time. Love the edge, man. Uh, what's the other one, with or without you? 
quite have it as majestic as the Edge has it, but you know, you get the idea, right? And then, of course, Albert Lee, country boy, he used it amazingly in a country setting. And then Adam Johnson, my good friend, blew my mind one day when he came over to my house with from a flea market or something or a garage sale or maybe it was a record store. And he had this old piece of vinyl from Chet Atkins called Hometown Guitar from 1968. And on one of the songs, the steel player was doing it. Back in 68, I think you either had to have maybe a very good tape echo in good condition or you literally used a separate tape machine and rigged it up to create the effect. The point is, this thing was around, but what did Eddie Van Halen do with this well-known technique of the dotted eighth delay? Well, he did cathedral. It sounded so perfect when I first heard it, I couldn't believe that it was a delay pedal. My friend Jeff Tyson, phenomenal guitar player, it's like, I think he uses a delay on that song, but it just, it sounded too perfect. I thought, no, 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 he doesn't. There's no way. It's all perfectly timed. Of course, then I finally messed around with it. You just got this B major shape on the fifth string going up the strings. Move it up to E flat. Very whole tone movement there. And then you kick on your delay. Hammer on to every note and use the volume knob to swell into each. So I used to play in a Van Halen tribute band. It was called Hot for Teacher in in the 2000s, and we'd play all over the place, both coasts and in the middle. I think my favorite show that we did, we played in El Paso, which, by the way, I played there three times. Some of the best audiences anywhere in the country, El Paso. It was totally sold out, standing room only, probably, I'm serious, 800 people, maybe. I don't know how big the club was, but the energy was incredible. I had the Van Halen replica guitar. Do you remember this guitar? They made like 300 of them, and they each one was like about $20,000, $25,000, and I was borrowing it, had it for like six months. It really sounded great. The pickup was just like Van Halen's, like wired by Seymour Duncan himself. And the backline guy, if I remember correctly, was from Mexico and he would just come over to the club and bring them amps and he brought me this Marshall. It was the best sounding Van Halen amp I personally have ever played. It was a, it was an 800 and it just roared. I don't have the best recording, but here's a little sample of Mean Street from that night. <laughs> Randy Monroe on the vocals, Ed Studebaker on the drums, Jesse Scott on the bass. Little mean street for you. We actually got pretty busy and we ended up playing the NAM show every year and it became like a thing. Saturday at midnight, man, we would play the Hilton Lobby and there'd be seriously 1,500 drunk ass NAMsters in there just ready because there's a ton of Van Halen fans at NAM. And uh, we got the funniest review once. I stumbled on some guy who wrote it somewhere. And I don't know if I have the words exactly right, because this was probably 2010 or 2009, but 
he paid us the best compliment. And he said, and then every Saturday at midnight after hitting the show, we go over to the Hilton and see Hot for Teacher play. They're kind of old and fat, but they play Van Halen perfectly <laughs> or something like that. Thank you, sir. I'll take that. Much better than looking like Van Halen and not playing it well. Of course, we are all mere students of Van Halen's guitar playing and... I don't purport to be an expert or anything. I just, I'm so moved by his life that I had to share what I've taken in about it. Whether I'm correct or not, I just had to share the stuff that I've noticed about his guitar playing. As someone who's been working on his licks forever, I can't ever forget the day that I was driving down the street. It was October 6th of this year when my good friend Peter Harris texted me, EVH dead? Question mark? And my stomach fell out. I mean, not just because of how much I love Eddie Van Halen, and uh, everything that he has did for me as a influence. But whoever you are, there's a moment that's going to come when the biggest influence of your lifetime may leave the planet. What I'm saying is, I don't think that there will ever be anyone in my life that I studied for nearly four decades before they died. Plus, Eddie was there in my most formative years, you know, when you're 12 years old and everything's coming together and you're figuring out what the heck this whole world is about. Not that I have any idea at this point either, but you know what I'm saying. That music was there, and is one of the things that carried me through everything, and just so much inspiration. It definitely had a direct shaping of my style. Like, if you listen, if I may, please play for you just a couple notes of this song of mine called Salamander, which you can find wherever. There's a video for it on YouTube, too. You can hear the Van Halen influence. I kind of took the his tapped harmonics thing, and I figured out a way to slap them with my thumb, which allows you to really slap kind of hit notes a lot more in quick succession because you don't have to be as precise because you're muting the strings and you've got this big old thumb hitting and it kind of uh, allows for a different sort of attack. Real quickly, just closing here, I figured I'd read something from the Guitar Player Magazine Eddie Van Halen tribute issue that I wrote. I wrote a big-ass thing. Matt Blackett wrote a huge thing, too. It's a really deep issue on Van Halen. Just came out. I'll just read you this quick little excerpt of when I first heard Eddie Van Halen. I mean, I think I'd heard Running with the Devil before, and maybe someone had played me unchained, but this was the first time I heard Van Halen. Flashback to 1982. I was 12 years old and a friend and I had just gotten off the bus in South San Francisco at the Cow Palace, the 16,000 seat barn where we were excitedly about to see our first rock concert, ACDC. As we walked warily past the drunk and rowdy beer bottle throwing rock fans already lined up to get into the arena, a lone guitar blasting out of a boombox froze me in my shoes. The tone firing out of those speakers was stunning, hotter than anything I'd ever heard, yet clearer than fireworks at midnight. I was transfixed. It was as if each note had been cut by a laser. Dude, that's Angus Young, I exclaimed, really wanting what I was hearing to be the great lead guitarist we were about to see. And yes, man, I am totally such an Angus Young fan, and Malcolm. But even before the solo climaxed with a glorious succession of Baroque-sounding triplet fusillades that very much reminded me of the Bach harpsichord record my mother had recently giving me, given me, I had to admit I was hearing someone else. The song was Eruption and obviously I thought it was brilliant, but if my 7th grade opinion doesn't carry enough weight for you, let's hear what legendary producer Ted Templeman thought of the song when, returning from a coffee break during the tracking of Van Halen's first album, he stumbled on Eddie Van Halen warming up on the piece. Quote, he really didn't think it was anything, Templeman writes in his memoir, Platinum, Producer's Life and Music, but it was astounding, he continues. If I hadn't walked by at that moment, it wouldn't have ended up on the album. Now it's universally recognized as the greatest guitar solo of all time." End quote. More poignant, though, is the first time Templeman laid eyes and ears on Eddie Van Halen. It was at a near-empty Van Halen gig at the Starwood in West Hollywood. Quote, I had never been as impressed with a musician as I was with Eddie Van Halen that night, Templeman writes. 
I'd seen Miles Davis, Dave Brubeck, Dizzy Gillespie, all of those transcendent artists, but Ed was one of the best musicians I'd ever seen live. His choice of notes, the way he approached his instrument reminded me of saxophonist Charlie Parker. In fact, as I watched, I was thinking there are two musicians in my mind who are the absolute best of the best. Parker, jazz pianist Art Tatum, and now here's the third game changer, Ed Van Halen. So right away, I knew I wanted him on Warner Brothers. And of course, there's another 2,200 words you can read if you want in the new issue. There's a lot of great stuff in there, including the very first real interview with Eddie Van Halen that was in Guitar Player in like 1978 from Jazz Obrecht. Not a word deleted, the whole thing. And apparently what was the last interview Eddie ever did is also in there. That one was done in 2016 by Stuart Williams. Art Thompson interviews Dweezil Zappa. Chris Buono contributes some how-to-play-like stuff. Mark McStay does some musical appreciation. And of course, Matt Blackett has a huge piece in which he talks to all the, all the guitar players that, are, that were there then that are here now, like Nuno and Steve Vai and Jennifer Batten. Got to give massive props to Chris Scapoliti, the editor-in-chief of Guitar Player Magazine, who rallied us all to put this together in just 10 days. And now it's out. Should be out on newsstands and maybe the 20th of this month, which is basically tomorrow. Check it out. Thank you guys so much for listening to No Guitar Is Safe. My name is Jude Gold. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend about it or do a nice review on the iTunes store, etc. Hit subscribe. And as Joe Satriani's teacher was quoted as saying in the very first episode of this podcast, 126 episodes ago, five years ago, keep it alive till you're 95. No guitar is safe.